You'll hear us a lot at Genesis talk about discipleship or disciple making or disciple something. You'll hear it all. We'll talk about getting into a discipleship group or a D group, as you might have heard, and uh, want you in those. You'll hear us talking about following Jesus. You'll hear us talk to you about um, are you in community, right? Like there's all these things that when you're part of the Christian subculture, you kind of just nod, nod along and go, well, yeah, totally. Like I totally get what that means. Uh, but if that's not a part of, first of all, if that is, if you do think you know what it means, very often we don't. But also like there are words that we use that when we actually think about it, we go, I don't even, what does it actually mean to be a disciple or to follow Jesus or to, you know, to take up my cross and follow him. And so we have these phrases that when you preach them, you hear in the room like, mm, 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 right? You get the little mm's from people. But then you go, what in the world does that mean? How do I do that? How do I, how do I, how do I follow Jesus? How, how, you know, many church mission statements are about like being fully developed or fully formed followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, so, so like, okay, how do I become fully formed? How do I be fully formed? And then you, you, you spend a little too much time in church and somebody goes, oh, well, you know, you have every spiritual blessing in Christ. And you're like, wait, so am I already fully formed? Or do I need to be fully formed? Which one is it? And I'm like, it's both, right? And then somebody says that and you go, well, hold on. <laughs> I don't, like, it's, it's like trying to solve a Rubik's Cube, right? Like, I don't even know what to do with this thing. Right? You give me all these verses and all these ideas and all these thoughts and you say, good luck, follow Jesus. And it seems like everybody else's Rubik's Cube is all together. It's like, actually not. We just took the stickers off and put them on the places so we looked like we knew what we were doing. But still, we get so confused sometimes when we, when we talk about just being a disciple and following Jesus. It can seem confusing. It can seem abstract. But the great thing is, we have the example of Jesus and his disciples, which can help us. We have both what Jesus has done and how he's called people to himself, and we have how people responded. And it gives us, you could say a roadmap, but it gives us an understanding that amidst all the kind of noise or all the, the talk or the conferences or the books or the structures, all of that, there's still this simple idea on what it means to follow Jesus. And what it means to follow Jesus. And that is actually what we get to today. For a little over a month now, we have been in the Gospel of John so glad that you have been with us in it. If you have, if you haven't, join up. Our Bible reading as a church starts in John, the New Testament readings in John. So you're already ahead of where we're going to be. You're going to finish it long before we get out of it. Uh, but, but that gives you even more exposure to what's happening here. And if you are using the audio Bible app with us, you can be listening to it and hearing these stories and hearing what's going on. And so we have, we, we want you to know what's going on in John, and then our preaching series going through John about having life in his name. We're still in chapter one, kind of in introductory matters. We had the prologue. We see the testimony of John the Baptist. 
We have what he has said. That was last week. Behold the Lamb of God. And now we get some of Jesus' first disciples. As John is writing, we get to hear about some of these first followers. And we get to see both what Jesus did and what they did. And we actually in this learn about following Jesus, but we also learn about another aspect of our Christian life, which is introducing others to Jesus. That that's there too. Introducing others to Jesus. Now John, probably more than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those three are called the synoptic gospels. And you have John over here, which is different. If you read Matthew and you read John, you go, these don't seem the same. But if you read Matthew and you read Luke, you go, these, I can kind of track with these. So John stands out as different. And John is full of, like throughout the gospel, he's full of double meanings. There'll be, there'll be a, a phrase spoken at like one level, but it has, you know, it can go all the way down a hundred feet or not. I was interacting with um, one of the professors that I see from time to time, and we were talking about John, and he goes, yeah, John is, 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 it's shallow enough that a child can bathe in it, but also deep enough that an elephant can. Right? Like, it's both, right? And as you get these statements from Jesus or from, uh, or from either other disciples who get confused, and you understand the light and dark differences, like, there's such depth to John. And also, as you just read it, you kind of go, hey, this is kind of easy. I'm tracking. I get it. We're going to get that today. We're going to get exposed to those ideas, even in John, where Jesus asks a question. You go, wait a minute, what are you asking? What are you really asking? Are you just asking, like, what do I want? Or are you asking, like, what do I want? Because those are two different answers. So we'll see these today. We're going to follow two of John's disciples. That would be John the Baptist's disciples, who leave John and follow Jesus. And then we're going to see Philip and Nathaniel. So in this calling and interaction between two disciples, we're going to see the first, John the, John, the, John the Baptist's disciples, and then secondly, Philip and Nathaniel, both in the calling and what goes on. And there's some pretty cool things that you'll see right away, both, both as they interact with Jesus and how Jesus interacts with them, and then how they bring others to Jesus or they speak about him with others. And there's so much that we can even learn there about coming to Jesus and pointing others to Jesus. So let's start with John's disciples. They go to Jesus and they bring others to meet him. Verses 35 through 42. We'll go through it a little bit by bit, but we start with just what John the Baptist does. And John the Baptist was not a good crowd builder, it seems, because he was totally fine losing two of his own followers to Jesus. John 1.35. The next day, again, John saw, or John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God. So now he's declared it again. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Remember how last week, or, uh, we spoke about how John knows his role. He knows what he used to do, and he also knows who, what he's not. And he is the one who's pointing others to Jesus. So it would make total sense that two of his followers, because remember, Jewish leaders would have followers. And so he had followers and people that he was instructing. And two of them, when they heard this, said, we're going with that guy then. We're going with Jesus. 
John was not concerned about that at all. So he wanted that to happen. He wanted people to follow Jesus. He knew his role. He goes, you don't follow me. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the prophet. I'm not Elijah. Go follow that guy. And so two of his disciples follow. John calls him the Lamb of God. And then in verse 38, they go to Jesus. He turns to them and here's one of those moments where he asks a question that's not just a question, that, like not just surface level. What are you seeking? What are you seeking? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher. I'd like to think right here, where, where are you staying? I'd like to think that they're, like they want more than that. They're not just like, show me your bedroom. Like that's not like, that's not there. Yeah, where, where do you cook meals? That's what we wanted to know. We just left John the Baptist to follow you now. And all we want to know is where you're staying. That's really our only interest. That's not their only interest. But you ever gotten into a moment where you have a question to answer and you're not really sure what to say? And so you just say the first thing that comes out of your mouth. Where, where are you staying? But there's that question. What are you seeking? What are you seeking? I think any parent, or maybe grandparent would even be easier, knows the question that's not just the question, right? Like you, you, you know what someone's intent is, and so you ask a question that they could just answer very matter-of-factly, but really it has much more depth to it. Jesus isn't just going, hey, why, why did you start following me? Like he was clueless. It might, might just more easily be understood if we just hear like this. What do you want? What do you want? Do you think that John's disciples just wanted to know where Jesus was staying? No. They didn't just want to know where Jesus was staying. I mean, what did John, their previous leaders say? Behold the Lamb of God. <laughs> like, like, I don't think you go from behold the Lamb of God to, we just want to know where you're staying. No bigs. That question is a question all of us need to answer. What do you want? And in different ways, we ask this each Sunday. What do you want? What do you seek from life? What answers are you trying to get to the issues that are before you? How do you understand God? How do you find forgiveness? What are you seeking? That's the question Jesus asks to people who walk up to him and want to follow. And when they say, we want to see where you're staying, he says to them, come and you will see. Come and you will see. Which again, in that moment, has more depth than perhaps those two disciples were aware Come and you will see. They came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him for that day, which means they didn't want to just see where he was staying. They didn't just go check it out and then go, okay, we're good, thanks. We're gonna go back to John now. They came and they stayed for it was about the 10th hour, getting later in the day. But then there again, that statement, there's the question, what are you seeking? What do you want? And then there's the statement by Jesus, come, and you will see. 
This is the path through which all men, women, and children go to the Lord. You come to him. You come to him. And as you walk with him, it's that phrase I use, you learn more and more about him. You learn more and more about him. But we often start, don't we? Don't we often start with some kind of casual or, or peculiar interest that we think the Lord might answer? There's some question, there's something, there's something about Jesus that seems right, beautiful and good. And as you walk to him, go to him, and he goes, what are you seeking? Come and you will see. And it can be one year or two years or 50 years of living your life with Christ, but what's happening? You're still seeing. You're still learning more about him. You're still understanding more of his character and more of his nature. And the things that you thought you came to Jesus for, now those are an afterthought. You're like, okay, that's cool. I'm glad. But you're, now you're just enjoying him. You don't get tired of reading the scriptures. You don't go, oh yeah, totally like that. John 1, I'm over it. Yeah, I know how John 1 goes. Moving on. Moving on. Yeah, John 2, don't need that. You know, I've read, I've read, you know, the book of whatever so many times. I have gotten out of it all there is to get out of it. There's absolutely nothing else that I can learn. No. Because the pattern of being a disciple is coming to Jesus. And then we see. Some say it this way in discipleship, right? Like you, you can't, cool little catchphrases pastors have. We should have a book of them. I'll make it. Uh, but you can't impart what you don't possess, right? Jesus is, is going to train these men up to be his apostles, be his followers. But what, what, they, what must they first be? Others who are walking with him. If they're gonna be those sent out to proclaim him and instruct on him and teach with him, what must they first be but people who follow him? People who follow him. And that's the same thing the Lord does with us. He calls us to him. And then he sends us out to speak of him. But he never leaves us when he sends us out. Calls us to him, sends us out. He doesn't send us out just as workers. He sends us out as disciples, as his To minister as a disciple of Christ, we have to come to Christ. Now this, you might go, of course, Hans, that makes perfect sense. But, but don't many of us feel at times that churches just use us for doing things for Jesus? That the concern is not first on us as a person, but on the tasks that we can accomplish? What does Jesus first do but just take these men and respond to their request? Come on, come and you will see. They're not just numbers. They're people. And he brings them. Now I love what happens next 
Because clearly, whatever had gone on during that interaction with Jesus for the day was enough to convince Andrew that Jesus was the guy, okay? Whatever had gone on, whatever he'd seen, whatever John the Baptist instructed, Andrew was ready to, to talk about it, okay? Verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now, we, we're familiar with Peter. Peter, the guy who chops people's ears off. That's Peter. Andrew first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, again, there's so much that even goes on right here that we might miss it. Two of John the Baptist's followers go with Jesus. Jesus says, what do you want? They say, we want to know where you're staying. So, come on. Andrew goes and gets his brother and says, not, hey, we found a cool guy's house. Not, you should listen to this guy or anything like that, or he's pretty neat, right? You should follow him on Twitter. I like some of the stuff that he says. Like, none of that. What does he say immediately? We have found the Messiah. That also gives me confidence and, and comfort because there were those in the first century who were looking for the Messiah, who were remembering what the Lord had spoken about this Messiah who would come. And so what happens? Andrew goes and he gets his brother and he says, we have found him. And what does he do? You need to get over here and see him. Jesus sees Peter, says, you're gonna be called Cephas, which means Peter, Simon, son of John. It's awesome. It's awesome because I don't think we realize that the familial relationships within Jesus' disciples as there is, there's also the sons of thunder. But to think that, that when Jesus was calling people, he was calling family. And Andrew goes and gets his brother and brings him to Jesus. But interesting, as we follow along in the Gospel of John and we get into chapter 2, we're going to see that these disciples really didn't understand a lot of what Jesus was saying. Now hear me, that's okay. That's okay. One of the things that grieves me most as a pastor is that if you come in as a younger believer or as a newer believer, you feel like there's no room for you. Because you go, hey, I can't speak about the Bible this easily. I, can't, I don't know your words. I don't know your phrases. I don't know if this book is in the Old or the New Testament, let alone if the Old Testament comes first or second. I don't know how to find a chapter and a verse. I don't know those things. And so you feel like you have to kind of be functioning at like high school level Christianity in order to fit in. I hate that. I hate that because I think it's Christians who keep other people from following Jesus sometimes. Because we're not joyful that we found the Messiah and just point others to him. 
We expect a certain way of life and a certain understanding, and there's these boxes that you have to check before you come in. Now, the thing that happens, though, is that Jesus is teaching in chapter 2, and John will even put in comments where he's like, oh, after he rose, we totally knew what he meant then, but, but we didn't know it in the moment that they weren't understanding what Jesus was saying. They didn't understand the depth of all that he was going to do. When Jesus says, what are you seeking? They're like, oh, I mean, I guess we want to know where you're staying. So there was so much that Jesus was teaching that his disciples were not sure about. And as it went, they weren't even sure how it was gonna happen. Now, remember even Peter, later on in Jesus's ministry, what does Peter say? But like, I will not let you die. It was, you know, Jesus, everything's leading to this point, Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Isn't, you're not, you're not going to get in the way of God's plan, okay? So there's some comfort here for me, and I hope there's comfort here for you to know that you don't have to come to Jesus with a seminary degree. What does Andrew say to Peter? We found the Messiah. What does Andrew not know about Jesus? A whole lot. What does Andrew not understand about what Jesus teaches? It will be a whole lot. You don't get the test on the front end. Right? Like, it's not like, hold on, before you do this, I need to be sure you have all these things checked off. What did Andrew know? He's the Messiah. Did he know everything that meant? No. Did he know every implication even of that statement? No. But what does he do? What confidence does he have? He has enough confidence to go to his brother and say, you need to know Jesus. You need to know Jesus. What happens when we want to share Christ with people? What can often happen? Wait, wait, we get nervous. I don't, I don't know what to say. What if, they have, what if they have some kind of argument that I don't know how to break down? What if they have some objection to the faith that I haven't thought about? What if, what if they have doubts that I don't know how to handle? What if they're experiencing something that I haven't experienced? Not yours to address. Not ours to address. What does he do? Here he is. The Messiah's here. You need to see him. You need to see him. Even where you're sitting right now, you probably even see these little cards, right? All they say is making Jesus known, and they have live, work, and play on one side. And all we're asking you to do, even with these, is to put the name of a person or a family that you're praying for around where you live, where you work, or where kind of your nine to five is, or whatever sphere that is, and where you play, where you recreate, where you hang out, where you work out, where your kids' activities. Taking those categories of life and going, Lord, who have you put in my life? that I can begin purposefully praying for, that they would come to know you and that you would use me in that, that you would use me in that. But the great thing is, what do we do? We go, hey, I know somebody you need to meet. The Messiah, that's who you need to know. That's who you need to know. I think we talk ourselves out of so many things of any spiritual conversations with people with the Lord, because we can't just go, it's Jesus. I don't know all the answers to every question that you have, and I don't know all the things that are going on, but I do know it's Jesus. 
I do know he's there and he forgives, right? So like we have Andrew proclaiming something about it that was significant enough that he would bring his brother along. And I will ask you this as well, just to consider. In how you currently process life, is Jesus so important that you're willing to tell your family and those closest to you? Because there are people every day who lose family, lose life, lose friends, lose face because they have found Jesus as worthy to speak of. They have found him worthy. That it is worth them going, I'm not for your Messiah, I'm not for your Savior. So we have that. Who might there be, even in your own circles, your classmates who don't know the Lord? Your parents who may not know the Lord. Your coworker who when you hear the stories on Monday of how they spent their weekend, you just go, I, I long for you to know someone better and to know something better. Can we, with those relationships, say, I found the Messiah and leave the result to him? So we have the disciples of John and they run after him and they ask Jesus. And he goes, what are you seeking? Where, where, can we, where are you staying? But what happens very quickly? They see him and Andrew runs off. Now we get another interaction between Jesus and disciples and this is between Philip and Nathaniel and this includes Jesus's you could say omnipresence, you could say omniscience, but he's aware of what is going on in the life of Nathaniel. So we have an interaction between John's disciples and Jesus, and now we're going to have an interaction between other disciples and Jesus. Verses 43 and 44. The next day, so we're just kind of following successively. There's about a week of days that are coming up over chapters one and two. The next day, John, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Now, if you follow Peter's life, you'll know that Peter's home base becomes Capernaum or Capernaum, however you want to say that. Uh, but it's just like saying, well, where's your hometown? Right? Where are you from? So Andrew and Peter were from Bethsaida. Philip was there as well. Philip found Nathaniel. Listen to this. Jesus said to Philip, follow me. Philip then goes and gets Nathanael and says, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So you know that Andrew was looking for the Messiah. He, show, he tells Peter. You know that 
Philip was looking for the Messiah. He tells Nathaniel, we found the one that the law is spoken of. Now just remember in yesterday, last week's sermon, what's happening, but the Jewish leaders are going to John the Baptist going, are you this person? Are you this person? And he's saying no, but what is Philip saying? We found the one who is the Messiah. We found the one who has been spoken of. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Well, Nazareth was the other side of the tracks. So Nathaniel, smart and perceptive man that he is, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Anything? Philip said to him, come and see. I mean, I think Jesus says, come and see. Philip says, come and see. Come look. And the other thing I love here is that Philip isn't embarrassed by Jesus' hometown. He's not embarrassed by that. He sees who Jesus is and says, just come, you know, come see. Come and see who he is. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now I wanna stop right there. When Jesus says what he says about Nathanael, and Nathanael just trash talks Jesus' hometown, you might see some disparity there. Right, like, like hold on, he's just saying, Any, can anything good come from here? And then Jesus is like, hey, an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. But it does seem in Jesus' understanding of who Nathanael is, that he saw an upright Jewish man. And Nathanael was asking, I think a legitimate question. Can anything good come from Nazareth? And he still goes and he sees and he finds Jesus. And what does Jesus do? But he proclaims something about who he is. Nathaniel rightly asks, are you reading my mail? How do you know about me? And what does Jesus do but speak to where he was when Jesus wasn't around and say, I saw you there. I saw you there. This is, this is beautiful for us because Jesus knows us completely. He knows us completely. He knows our heart. He knows our need. We cannot hide it. It wasn't as if he only knew about Nathaniel and not about Andrew or about Peter or the other unnamed disciple in the first paragraph or Philip. He's not only unaware of who these people were, but he got some special revelation about who Nathaniel was. But he gets to have this interaction with Nathaniel. And the great thing is Jesus knows us. You cannot hide from him. Now our sin, I say this with my kids, our sin makes us hide. Our sin makes us hide. You see that in the garden. 
Genesis chapter three. They ate the fruit, their eyes were open. The sound of the Lord, the presence of the Lord comes into the garden. And what do Adam and Eve do? They hide. They hide because there's this shame that comes with sin, yes. But I think there's this part of us also that thinks that we can keep certain details of our life away from the Lord. That we can hide that. We can hide that sin. We can hide that thing. We can hide that aspect of our heart. And we cannot. In Genesis 3, there's this little interaction. Who told you you were naked? Right? Like, but it's not as if God didn't know. He wasn't on a fact-finding mission. He was just peeling back the layers of Adam and Eve's sin to expose what had gone on. And what he's doing here is he's showing Nathaniel who he is. He's showing Nathaniel who he is. Nathaniel gives the answer. Now again, an upright Jewish man with a messianic expectation. And what does he say in verse 49? Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Come and you will see. Come and you will see. And so what does Nathaniel do? He comes to Jesus and he sees who he is. Jesus answered him. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. You believe? You will see greater things than these. And what is he doing in that? First, he goes, you believe because of that? You're going to see much more than that, right? He's calling him in. Jesus is going to do a, books and books, as John put it, of ministry. But he's going to do years of ministry. And so that little bit of knowledge that Jesus shares with Nathaniel, he goes, you're going to see much greater things than this. Much greater things. Much greater. And then we have verse 51. And and verse 51 has an allusion back to Genesis. Now remember in the book of Genesis, we really follow a family once we get into chapter 12. We're following a family. And that's Abram's family. Right? We speak of the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And so we're following this line all the way through and we end the book of Genesis in Egypt. We begin the book of Exodus in Egypt. But there's this promise given in Genesis chapter 12 about land and blessing and what God will give. And he even tells Abraham or Abram that he will not see it, but he'll die at a good age, that his people will be slaves in the land, but that God will bring them into it. Okay? Right there in about the middle of the book of Genesis, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob has the sons, right? And the sons kill their brother or think they killed their brother. That's how they get to Egypt, Joseph. But Jacob is there in Genesis chapter 28. And starting in verse 10, we read this. Jacob left Beersheba and he went down to Haran. 
they're not in the land yet. They haven't been given the land in its fullness, right? That happens in Joshua. And he came to a certain place and he stayed there that night because the sun had set, taking one of the stones on the, of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. So he's using a rock for a pillow. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now that's Genesis. There's a dream that Jacob has, that there's this ladder and there's these angels descending up and down. But we do not see in that all of what's going on or all of what they're doing. Then you hear in John chapter one, and you look at verse 51, and he says this, Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, you will see heaven opened up and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, stay with me here. In Genesis 12 or in Genesis 28 or other spots in Genesis, God promises to bless his people, Israel, <clears throat> and through those people, the world will be blessed. Jacob has this dream where he sees angels descending up and down and God reminds him that that land is going to be theirs and that they will have that blessing and their descendants will be everywhere. Jesus, speaking to Nathaniel, says, you'll see the angels descending on the Son of Man. Well, ultimately, as Galatians 3 shows us, who is the one through whom the nations will be blessed? The Messiah. The seed. The one through whom redemption for the world comes. And so you see the link between Genesis 28 and what Jesus is speaking in John chapter 1, verse 51 you're going to see the angels descending on the Son of Man, that the blessing comes through the Messiah. The fuller understanding of Jacob's dream comes through Jesus. That through Jesus, the world will be blessed. Now, Andrew, Simon Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, right? Jesus' followers were here, Jewish men. And what is Jesus doing? He's reminding them of old promises that he's fulfilling and showing them what is to come. Fuller ministry, greater ministry. You will see even more 
But what does it take? What does it take? Come and you will see. Come and you will see. Jesus is the man that you should be following and the one you should be pointing others to. But, but in the same way that he has spoken to his followers, his first followers here, about what it will be like. You don't come to Jesus with a fully loaded understanding. You come to Jesus in faith, trusting who he said he was, trusting who the scriptures have revealed him to be, trusting him as the Messiah. You come to him in faith and you continue to learn who he is. That's the life of a disciple. Come and you will see. And, and so often, don't we get, we, we get hung up on our doubts, our worry, the things we can't figure out. Well, well, why did this happen? Or why didn't that happen? Or how come life's like this? Or how come there's this? And this doesn't seem fair, and that doesn't seem fair. And the answer, I think, is the same. Come and you will see. Come to the Messiah. Learn from him. Trust him. I was speaking with a friend recently. We were talking about the Bible. Just talking about what it says and things in it. There's permission in Genesis not to understand everything in the Bible, okay? You have permission for parts of it to confuse you or confound you. You have permission to go, I'm not sure what that means. I'm not sure how to answer that. I'm not sure how that worked. That's totally fine, okay? So we were speaking about it and the question was put to me and it's a question that, that you've probably asked, this, you know, asked of yourself or others. Well, don't you have problems with, with the Bible, Hans? Don't you have issues with what it says? Which is a great question, right? It's a great question. What it reveals and how it communicates it. And I, said, I'm, I'm, I said, I'm sure there's things on my list that are confusing things I don't understand, things I would like to know better. But on the whole, no, I'm not overly concerned about those things. Why? Because I've seen Jesus change people. And, and okay, I'm good. I've seen him change people. I've seen these words from him transform lives. And so I'm okay with things not being totally understood. I'm just okay going, I'm not sure how the question's gonna get answered, but I do know that if you go to Jesus, you're gonna get a better answer than if you hang out with me. I'm not sure how we reconcile this issue. I'm not sure how we handle this. I'm not sure how we, we get over whatever feeling you have. I'm not sure, but I do know that if you come and see that it will be better for you. When you look at the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, and Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded? When we see that in Matthew 28, we see the same rhythm. Introducing people to Jesus. Identifying them with Jesus through baptism. Jesus' followers baptized. And actually, we'll read about that. Like, how come you're baptizing people, right? Like, and he goes, not Jesus, it was his followers who were baptizing. And teaching them to obey. Because it isn't as if you come to Jesus and you have it all figured out. If Jesus' first followers came to Jesus with an incomplete understanding of all he was going to do, but with enough understanding to trust him as the Messiah, I think we're okay. We come to Jesus. We trust him. We let him lead us. As we walk with him and read his word or engage in the life of the church and pray that others might know the same and point them to him, we let him work. We let him work. We don't work in that way. He does it. I tell you, being the Lord's is the greatest journey anyone could be on. Because when this life frustrates you and you feel buffeted and everything's coming at you and you're not sure what's going on or how tomorrow will even be, Jesus steadies us. Why? Why? Well, look at how he's spoken of even in this passage. The Lamb of God. The Messiah. The one Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth. The one on whom angels descended and ascended. The one through whom blessing comes. He is the one to be trusted. Come and see. Come and see. He's good. He is good.